This is the Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. Welcome to Bloomberg Business of Sports. It's a podcast. It's a radio show where we talk with some of the most influential and the up-and-coming folks in the world of sports, especially when it comes to that nexus of economics and the games that we all love. My guest today, Rachel Luba. She's the founder of Luba Sports. She has a new agency, relatively new agency. Her big client, Trevor Bauer, you've probably heard of him. He's a key pitcher in the rotation for the Cincinnati Reds. This conversation happened at a time today where folks are trying to get together to figure out how to get baseball back. And one of the big takeaways from this interview, I got at least, was we may be further away from that, at least rhetorically and from a negotiating perspective. Still some optimism that by maybe July 4th, we'll see some baseball. But who gets paid? How they get paid? Who's going to lose money? What the game looks like on the other side? Those are all big questions. I also talked to Rachel about building her own business. She has a different model with which she represents folks, disruptive and certainly cutting against the grain. She has a great comment that you'll hear about basically away from the bros to the nerds and really leveraging that and taking advantage of the fact that negotiations these days, they're more science than art. Check it out. Well, Rachel, it's great to be talking to you. Really appreciate you taking some time. It's incredibly busy right now, and it's incredibly busy because we're trying to figure out how and when and whether, I guess, baseball comes back. What's the state of play? We've got people at least talking about it, but give me a reality check. It's kind of interesting because right now you have the media that kind of came out and um, listed what what the MLBs and the owners' proposal was for the players and how to resume play. Um, and after, you know, talking with the union and talking with, um, you know, players, you start to realize that, first of all, the only kind of proposal that they have made um, has to do with the operations of actually resuming play. Um, so, you know, everything from – how they're going to be tested all the time, you know, for the virus uh, and, like, safety precautions. But there actually hasn't really been any sort of economic proposal that's been made to the union. Um, And I think that kind of goes contrary to what the average fan in the media is, you know, saying out there. So, you know, from an agent's perspective, um, it's kind of clear that the owners have – taken to the media to kind of put, leak this out there about this, you know, alternate uh, fee compensation structure and, you know, to try to gauge, I guess, um, fan perception to it and then put pressure on the players so that they feel uncomfortable and want to, you know, now a lot of them feel attacked right now. Right. So, you know, it's an interesting environment. Yeah, the gulf seems wide on the on the economic picture. Help me understand where the players are coming from, and and where you know you represent, uh, as we mentioned, a very well known uh, pitcher for the Reds, Trevor Bauer. You know, like what's your perspective representing him? I, I mean, listen, they like he specifically. He loves to compete. He always wants to play. Like he's the first person that is, you know, dying to get back on the field and dying to get back on the mound and pitch and compete for his team. Um, you know, that being said, the, there is there was a fee compensation structure that was originally agreed in March. Um, 
you know, amidst the whole uh, virus. And from where the players are sitting, the owners are kind of trying to go back on that and put the, I guess, the burden of the risk that they're taking, that they're going to lose a bunch of money because there will be no fans, and they're trying to kind of place it on the players. And the way the players kind of feel about it is that, look, as business owners, when you, you know, you own a team, you take a lot of risk, but there's also a lot of upside and reward that you get from taking those risks, right? When you have a great year, you know, you bring in a lot of money. When that happens, players never see as a whole the profits and the benefits of that risk, right? Um, You'll see in free agency, I guess, you know, they'll spend more money, but only a few players will profit off of that. So not the players as a whole. Um, So what's happening right now is the owners are kind of asking the players as a whole to preemptively kind of burden the risk, you know, take on the loss. And the way, I guess, I think the players are kind of looking at it, it's like, look, most of them, whoever's in the open market this next offseason, they're probably going to take some sort of hit. Um, So to ask players beforehand to also take an additional loss um, and, you know, kind of take on the risk and, you know, the loss of profit um, when they never get to reap those, those benefits of the business um, during, you know, profitable years, they're, they're kind of out on it. Right. And, you know, also you have, like, the additional risk that they're asking them to go out there um, and, you know, risk their health and safety. Um, and so to ask them to take an additional cut when they're the ones taking on – even more risk. The fact that you can't have fans in the stands is kind of acknowledging the fact that this isn't a completely safe environment still. So when you ask them to go out and take an additional risk, but then also take an additional pay cut from what they already, you know, agreed to, um, you know, it doesn't sit well with a lot of players. And what do you make of this sort of public pressure argument? Because, I mean, you have folks at least implicitly and in some cases explicitly essentially invoking, listen, this is America's pastime. This is good for the country. You have that coming from the, the highest levels. How much pressure does that put on players to just say, all right, we're going to you know, maybe buckle a, a little bit because it, it's for the greater good? I mean, the pressure is immense, I would say. Um, they're, they're feeling it. And it's always interesting to me that you know fans will side – you know, they'll, they'll call the players greedy and they'll side with, I mean, the reality is the owners, the ones that are, um, you know, asking for a break here are, are much more wealthy than the players. I think a lot of fans forget that a, a lot of these players, especially with the changing of the environment um, with free agency, and you see a lot of um, teams, you know, leaning towards and, um, you know, paying or they're wanting to retain younger players, right? And they get to pay them less. A lot of players are making the, you know, major league minimum. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, they're not, and that's about $555,000. So just kind of put that into perspective. That's not millions of dollars at all. They already agreed to an additional um, pay cut of a prorated amount per game. So, you know, the, I think the way, I guess the way that they feel right now is that, um, you know, fans are very kind of pushing for them to go back to work. And they feel, they, they acknowledge, I think, that they're, 
um, very lucky to be in the position that they're in, and they, they do make a good living. And there are plenty of people out there, you know, especially right now, the essential workers who are putting, putting their lives on the line as well, and they're not making, you know, anywhere near that. But, uh, you know, you could have a whole moral discussion about should players be paid what they are, but I think the reality is, like, they see it as, like, there was there was an agreement. Um, there's also the CBA that we collectively bargain uh, every four years that's agreed upon. And so to kind of go back on that or, you know, ask to kind of change the rules in favor of the owners um, amidst the pandemic is, you know, doesn't sit well with them but i think the pressure to go back you can you can see it right now there's yeah. players that are speaking up um that are voicing their opinion they're getting a ton of backlash for it um and i think it's i think sports are kind of the one industry where fans tend to feel like they they almost are the owners in a way um it's like right. their team right um, even though they're not paying, you know, they're not the ones shelling out the money, but it's their team. Like they're the ones who are employing these guys and they feel this strong kind of relation to the owners versus I think the players. Interesting. That's a really interesting, uh, dynamic. Well, you mentioned the CBA and obviously, uh, next year, I, I believe that's going to be back on, on the table. How much do you worry about precedents being set or things and decisions being made in this time, which is by all accounts, there's no argument about the fact that this is an extraordinary time that essentially and effectively bleeding over into negotiations next year. You know, I don't really think that anything that's done this year um, is going to be a one-off. It's going to be an outlier is the way I kind of see it. Um, You know, even with how they're going to, they're going to have to restructure how they do salary arbitration because it just won't, it won't work in the traditional model. And so the 2020 players of salary arbitration will kind of never be used again for comparisons, basically. Um, So to say, to think that any, anything we decide will carry over, I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily worry about it. Like it will um, adversely affect players, but I think there is a way to kind of use this situation to give and take as players, knowing that it's almost like you're not, you're not really risking anything because this is like a freebie year. Yeah. So like let's let let's let the teams and the owners experiment with stuff, um, or let's let MLB experiment. Let's try a universal DH, something like that, right? Where I think, you know, players themselves can kind of gauge, uh, you know, their appeal for it and whether they like it and it's something that they want going forward without feeling like they're committed to it because it was bargained in the CBA. Um, and, and I think when you get to the CBA, if they realize they did something that, or, you know, agreed to something that they they really don't like, you know, then they, you know, that's kind of out the window. Um, so, I think it's a way to create leverage right now. I'm not sure it's completely um, being used, but um, I'm not sure it's going to be something that's going to really carry over um, and hurt the players. Into the negotiations. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you you bring up an interesting point, though, that that it is a way to experiment sort of with the game itself to to some extent. You brought up the idea of universal DH. Are, Are there other things that you think are on the players' minds that they may want to try given that we are in this uh, very different environment and going to be playing in, in a very different way? 
Um, you know, I think, I mean, the the universal DH is definitely one of them, um, mm-hmm. and I think it'll be an interesting, you know, change. Uh, the postseason uh, format, I think, is one that um, is interesting to players. I'm not sure that they're 100% sold on this model, specifically of what we've kind of heard from the media of the expansion of the teams that will be in the postseason. But I think, you know, it. I would say that there are definitely players out there that are open to some sort of change in postseason format. Interesting. So what happens next at this point? Obviously, there are discussions happening, but what's a realistic timetable? As a fan, I'm asking, uh, you know, what's, what's a realistic timetable here, do you think? If I had to guess, I think it's like almost end of May right now. So I would say... By this time in June, players will will be in their home cities mm-hmm. um, for workouts for spring training. That that would be my best guess. But again, like the media has made it seem like the owners, I think, um, have proposed much more and have gone into much more detail to the union. Um, but in reality, that's that's the media talking. That's owners, you know, whether it's owners or whoever it is, kind of leaking it to the media. But there's still a lot that needs to be unpacked here in terms of the economics. Yeah. Well, and you understand the economics of this game so well. And, and it's interesting just sort of even reading about, you know, that even going a level down, you know, different owners, different cities, different franchises, the economic impacts are, are going to be very different a, a, across the, the league here. Does that sort of raise the, the level of difficulty or is that just kind of the way it is in all professional sports? I mean, I think it's, yeah, it's the way it's going to be in... Um, the haves and haves not, have-nots, right? <laughs> right. I mean, listen, like, it's the, I think, kind of natural ebb and flow of of businesses. You know, yeah. you have... Obviously, this is a very, a very rough year uh, for all businesses, and I think you're going to see it. There'll be effects, um, you know, ripple effects in the market probably this off-season. Um, but... You know, that's that's kind of it's it's to be expected, I guess. Yeah. Interesting. So I, I want to shift a, l- a little bit, if we can, into your business, how you created it, how you run it, a little bit of your background. And, and maybe as a bridge to that, I, I read somewhere that you said contract negotiations are less art and more science these days. And, and clearly, this is a time where we're talking a lot about science from a different perspective, health and vaccines and serologicals and, and all of that. Uh, what did you mean by that? And, and it feels like that might be more appropriate than ever. Yeah. So the way, I guess the way I see it is I'm, I'm kind of lucky to um, be trying to, I guess, you know, when I tried to break into this industry, um, you know, nowadays versus if I tried this, you know, maybe even 15 years ago, I'm not sure how much success I would have had. And that's largely, I think, because of my gender. Um, I'm a female, obviously. So um, it the reason I think I'm kind of able to break into it now is because before it was much more it was much more like a boys club. And, mm-hmm. and not to say that it, it isn't still a boys club, but I think the way that negotiations are done, the way contract negotiations negotiations are done with the with the teams, you see you see a trend shifting from it was a bunch of former players that kind of make up the front office when they're done to now you have a bunch of 
guys who've never played baseball, maybe they played uh, Little League or, you know, in high school, and they're a bunch of, you know, really smart, really bright Ivy League grads that, uh, you know, majored in statistics and um, that they're basically they're just a bunch of nerds and they're in front office and and no no hate to the nerds like I'm a nerd too Um, but that those are the kinds of guys that are in the front office now so there's a change and the way that they're valuing players is they're they're running numbers and they have these algorithms that are kind of determining players values and you know, you can only, I guess, argue and negotiate so much with numbers. Um, you know, numbers are numbers, values are values. There's a small, there's kind of a range that you can push it, um, you know, in terms of when you're negotiating. But it's much less of, you know, let's go on a golf course and have some beers and talk business and, you know, you do me a solid, I'll do you a solid kind of thing. Um, you know, they they – they have the values and like this is this is what they can pay and a lot of teams are you know more or less valuing players pretty similarly because again like numbers don't really lie um and numbers are what they are yeah so when i say like it's much less or much more of a science now and less of an art um you know i think I can go in if if I can create the same kind of algorithm. I guess the way I saw it is like I know their value, and I don't feel like I'm up against this boys' club. I don't need to be buddy buddy with gyms anymore. If I have algorithms, I can, you know, go and negotiate for my player um, with numbers. They have numbers, I have numbers, and you know, it, it's much again. Like I said, it's much more of a science now. Yeah. Um, and so it just changes the environment and makes it, I think, a little more um, doable for people other than the traditional, let's be honest, it was, you know, the white male that really usually um, had a chance to work in baseball. And right. I think it's changing a lot now. Yeah, it's the deep rowing maybe of the uh, yeah. <laughs> industry that here's hoping. Absolutely. Um, so I I do wonder how that informed some some pretty dramatic decisions. It feels like you made in creating even the model of your company. You know, moving to an hourly rate, moving to a situation where you're essentially assembling. It sounds like sort of a different team of sorts for each player. Walk me through kind of the conception of that and how this fits together. Yeah, so I guess the way I saw it when I was interning at an agency when I was in law school, um, you know, I got to really see the inner workings of an agency and, um, you know, how they work with their players. And then um, it it got me thinking. Um, And then as I guess when I was at the union working there, I really got to see the ins and outs, like the good, the bad, the ugly of all the different agencies. But one of the things that stuck out the most to me was the way the fee structure is right now, where you take a percentage, the agents take a percentage of the player's contract. Um, To me, I I saw the amount of work that agents were spending on their players. And really when it, was any time other than a contract negotiation, a lot of times, you know, agents weren't that involved with their players. They weren't going out there and a lot of players, like they pitch agents or they pitch their agencies to players, um, you know, as these full service agencies, they offer, you know, some are big media companies too, and they offer, you know, all these services. Um, 
but where they make their money is on the field, like for the on-field contract. Right. So once they negotiate that, let's say once you negotiate a, you know, a 10-year contract, you lock in that fee. The very next day, your player can leave you, leave your agency and go to another agency. You will get that entire 10-year contract, the percentage, the fee that you've earned. The other agency that he leaves, even if he leaves the very next day, will not see any of it. So the incentive to kind of go out and be doing work, you know, for your player um, is just not really there. Um, And so it got me thinking, and you know, how do you, how do you change that? How do you incentivize, um, you know, agents to, to do work for their players? And so that was like kind of the first thing that made me think of, you know, this hourly structure. And again, this isn't like a, this isn't a novel, um, you know, brand new idea. This is something that, I mean, this is how most law firms operate. And so I think that, you know, with my legal background, that was, at least when I was in school, kind of trained with, and you learn all about billable hours, but it incentivizes you to do work, right? That's how you get paid. And then the other way I kind of saw it was, especially with this change and, you know, as we get into more modern times and we're using data and analytics to value players, you know, the, I guess, players, their value is much more set in stone. Um, So the amount of, you know, the amount that an agent really truly moves the needle um, isn't, isn't like I think it used to be. So, for an agent then to go and profit off of a player who creates his own value on the field himself and for an agent to then get percentage of that to me didn't make sense, right? Yeah. You should pay for the value of the service provided versus the value the, versus the player paying for the value that he created himself. So that was kind of, I guess, where, I have this idea of, you know, maybe, maybe this kind of alternate model um, would, would be good in the industry. Um, so why it, didn't this happen before, you think, Rachel? Um, you know, I think you can, you can say that about, about any sort of disruptive sure. model in any industry. Um, and look, like, I'll, I'll be the first to tell you, like, I, when, I was at the, when I was at the union, I, I picked a lot of um, brains, you know, from guys that have worked in the sport for, you know, 30, 40 years. Um, and I asked them the same question. I was like, am I missing something here? Because to me, this makes sense to me. And again, like this isn't for everybody. Um, you know, it, it might not be the agency, the type of structure for all players, but this seems like it would be a viable option uh, for many. And, you know, their answer kind of just was usually, like the industry is ripe for something like this, but it's just going to take take the right the right person to kind of go do it. Right. Um. And and you kind of blackball yourself, I guess, um, from a lot of other agencies. Um. You know, like you kind of become enemies to them, and I think that was always something that dissuaded a lot of people from doing it. Um. But the problem was, I guess, for me, it was much more easy to kind of swallow that because I was already, a lot of times my gender already kind of blackballed me. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so how how has that gone? I mean, put those two together for me because you are an outlier. I think it's safe to say in a number of mm-hmm. ways, as you just described. Has it gotten easier? Has it gotten harder? What have you learned? Um, I think it's gotten. I think it's gotten easier. Um, I think slowly, like I'm becoming less of this new, you know, this new person in the industry that doesn't know what she's talking about, that doesn't really belong here. Versus, you know, I, I've tried to be outspoken um, the best I can, even on social media, um, in order to, you know, give myself a voice and, um, you know, just make my voice heard. Um, and I think it's kind of, it's, it's changed, you know, the feelings where before it was like, everyone just kind of ignored me. And, you know, she, she was no one. She, you know, she's new. She's, she's a female. She doesn't know what she's doing to just someone who has outspoken opinions or, you know, maybe is different, but I'm much, I think I'm much more, I guess, accepted in the industry. Um, I wouldn't say like, a lot of agents are, I'm not sure how crazy they are about me, but um, I, I think I'm, I, I've definitely kind of secured a spot in the industry. Yeah. And so where does it, where does the, your agency go from here? Obviously, as, as we talked about at the top, you know, you have a very high profile client in Trevor Bauer. Like, is this, you know, and, and is the model imminently scalable? I mean, do you build this into a, a mega agency? Is that your vision? Or, or what? how do you take this and, and how do you look out? You're clearly very goal-oriented. You're clearly very driven. You're clearly fearless when it, when it comes to, you know, breaking the mold. What are the next couple steps for your business? Yeah, I mean, I think it's bringing on more clients. Um, but again, with my, the structure that I have and the way it's set up, the more clients I bring on, the more um, staff and personnel I can bring on as well wow. to service them. So that's kind of the nice part about the way that mine's set up because I do, I mean, one of the things I'm, you know, very cognizant of is I don't want to have what these normal agencies, traditional agencies have and how they operate where the, you know, player to staff personnel ratio is, you know, it's crazy. Um, you know, there's a handful of personnel trying to, you know, manage, you know, it could, you could have hundreds of clients. Um, I want to be able to have, you know, more or less undivided attention for, for the players. If the, right. if the players want a service, you know, I want them to have someone who is specifically working on working on that. And I've seen, you know, already even in the last year, the benefits of that with Trevor and just how much he's been able to grow his brand, you know, even off the field. And obviously he did, we got him a great contract. Um, you know, he's the second highest paid uh, starting pitcher in salary arbitration. And um, so, you know, we didn't, we didn't drop the ball there, and then you know, look at his look at his brand now, even just in the last year. Um, but because that was something that was important to him, so we could get him. We had the resources, and we could get him the right people to you know focus on him and helping him reach those goals. How much do you think being a former competitive athlete helps you from a mindset perspective, both in the sort of the the discipline, but also in in having conversations with with athletes and and people around the athletic ecosystem? I mean, I think it helps tremendously. Um, Just in terms of, 
you know, having my business and trying to grow it, um, you know, there's a lot of any athlete will tell you there's always a ton of doubt usually that they have to over, you know, overcome and prove people wrong. And you kind of fail your way to success as an athlete, um, at least as a gymnast, usually it's like, you know, you, that's, that's how you succeed. You're used to falling on your face over and over again. Literally so falling on that, your face, yeah. right? Like yeah. not, not, yeah, not, this literally. is not a metaphorical falling. This is actually falling. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that was something since the age of two that I grew up with. I'm used to, um, you know, you fa- you fail your way to success. So that's always, that's definitely helped, um, I think, in having my business and not, you know, not giving up and um, pushing through the very kind of uncomfortable times, and there were many. Um, so, yeah, I think that helps greatly. And then, you know, in terms of talking to athletes, look, I didn't play baseball. I didn't play softball. I don't know what it's like to be in a clubhouse. Um, but every athlete, like, has something in common. Like, they know what it's like to give up their life. Like, I, I didn't give up my life for sport um, as an adult like these guys are doing, but I gave up my entire childhood, basically, yeah. from the age of two to a sport. So I, under, I understand that. I understand, um, you know, the – toll that it takes on your body. Um, gymnastics is not nice to your body at all. So just some of these things, I think, um, definitely help when, you know, trying to relate to athletes, relating to, you know, how do you balance work and what you've committed to with, you know, family stuff in your personal life. Um, so, yeah, I think, it, I think it helps. And I haven't found too many baseball players that look at it as, like, you know, oh, you don't know what it's like, like, you know, you were never a baseball player. Like, right. they understand any sort of athlete that competes at a high level probably understands, you know, more or less what they're going through. Right. Interesting. So, you know, I want to close by, by asking a question that we've been asking a lot of folks over, over the past few months uh, who are incredibly successful in business, and, and it's about this sort of time that, that we're living in. And we talked a little bit about it in the context of, of baseball and, and the game and the economics of it. But, but I wonder, and, and you can take this in whatever direction you want, you know, when we get to the other side of this, and it, it feels like we're, we're creeping toward that, like, how are, how's life sort of sports, however, business, how has it fundamentally changed maybe in ways that, that we don't quite anticipate now in your estimation? a good it's a good question um you know i think i mean it's going to change i think there are going to be some drastic changes at least for the next like year or two um but a part of me wants to say that there is going to be a bigger shift towards not that there already isn't social media but utilizing social media in just different ways, hmm. whether it's, you know, consuming sports, because I think with this, you know, with the social distancing and people, you know, less, less comfortable with being in crowds and things like that, I think finding ways to connect with, whether it's, you know, fans or, you know, what, you know, streaming sports or whatever, I think it's going, I think there's going to be some sort of focus on, on social media. You've seen platforms even that have taken off in the last two months because of COVID. Um, I mean, I don't know if you know TikTok. That uh, of app. course. Yep. Yeah. 
I have teenagers, so they so yeah. they have they have very much informed me of that. It is not something I'm personally uh, involved in, but I you know I've got, I've got my team being you know a 17 yeah. year old and a 15 year old working on that. <laughs> right. So, but I mean, and I'm not on TikTok really either. But you see this app just really taken off, and even with. Um, you know, adults um, who, you know, made TikTok accounts yeah. and things like that. So I think there's, you know, I think there is going to be some sort of um, shift to social media, maybe new platforms that are going to come out. Um, and I think I'm hoping that athletes utilizing social media more, especially baseball players. Um, we've seen a lot of like baseball players in the last few months, um, you know, doing Instagram lives and yeah. kind of giving fans more access into their, into their lives, which I think is, you know, I think that's super important in order to grow the game. Um, so I think that could be, I guess, the silver lining that comes out of it is just um, more engagement. At least, that's my hope. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's interesting you say that about baseball. It feels like NBA players discovered that before baseball players <laughs> before. did, right? But it's it's a tradition, but that's that's the culture of baseball. It, yeah. You know, it, it's not. It's this old school kind of sport. It's you know, keep your head down. It's not about you. It's about the team. You know, the jersey on your back. Um, and you know, you're not really supposed to make it about you. Yeah. Whereas NBA, it's just a very different culture. But I think the way to grow the fan, grow the sport, is you have to target the younger fans, and they want to connect with the athletes themselves, not the teams. And so do you, that, that leads me to, to one more question. I know I said I was going to ask you the last question no like four questions ago. But um, will you, do you have plans either immediately or longer term to expand beyond baseball? Or do you envision building this agency largely around baseball? I mean, I think to start, obviously, I want to grow it um, around baseball because mm-hmm. it's, you know, where I focus my time and energy. Um, but the long-term goal is absolutely to grow it. I want to expand into other sports, possibly um, entertainment, mm-hmm. um, even, you know, esports. I think is the next kind of up-and-coming up um, industry, which I think has also largely taken off because yeah. of, um, of COVID. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's the ultimate goal, but I want to keep the same sort of fee structure across, you know, any – Um, any industry that I go into. And that was my conversation with Rachel Luba, founder of Luba Sports. My thanks to her. Very timely conversation, obviously, as we try to get back on the field when it comes to Major League Baseball. Tune in later this week. Check out this feed because I'm going to have my interviews with the CEOs of Equinox and Planet Fitness back-to-back, two ends of the fitness spectrum, how they plan to get back to business and what fitness on the other side of this may look like. Always check me out on Twitter at Jason Kelly News. I'm Jason Kelly. Thanks for listening.